Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello. It's really nice for me to be here with Al Levin, who I've actually communicated with for a very long time on Twitter uh, in a different capacity than I am here. And uh, I was and have been so honored by what you do. Uh, His podcast is called The Depression Files. There's much more to it, and I'm going to give you a little insight into who and what Al Levin is just a second and then we're going to talk about his story so first off let's say he's an assistant principal at a pre-k to eight school in the saint paul public schools he's in minnesota Uh, he's been in education for over 20 years and the past 14 as an administrator he's married he has four children and two dogs yay gotta have gotta have those four kids (laughs) Al's completed all of the coursework in working towards a co-active coaching certificate through the Coaches Training Institute, and he's certified in cognitive coaching. The coaching work has allowed him to support the staff he works with in the public schools, as well as others who are seeking support in reaching their goals or working past challenging times in their lives. And of course, we all have those right now. He's also a person who has recovered from two major bouts of depressive disorder, one of which was quite debilitating for nearly six months of his life. Through this experience, he's become very, very passionate about learning more about mental health and supporting others with a mental illness, particularly men with depression. In addition to a blog, he has the podcast I mentioned. Uh, He interviews men who struggle with depression and or other mental illnesses. Both in his blog and the podcast, uh, you can find them at thedepressionfiles.com. Now make sure that's in the liner notes. Uh, so that you can get there. He speaks publicly for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, that's NAMI, and more often he speaks on his own as well. He was recently appointed by the governor to the Minnesota State Advisory Council on Mental Health, and he serves on the the State Suicide Prevention Task Force. Uh, You can always find Al tweeting at Al1118. Sorry, I swear I just washed my tongue and I can't seem to do a thing with it. <laughs> I really am excited to have you here. And um, I, some people say, oh, God, that's a weird way to put it. You're talking about suicide. Yes, I am. But the fact is, those of us that remain behind, suicide survivors and those that are adjacent, 
we can't just stop living. And that's why I believe humor has a place in absolutely everything. So let's start by talking about, I guess, the first time you had that bout of depression. So first, I'd like to say thank you for having me on the show, Elaine. And you have been a huge advocate of mine. And a lot of times with you know, Twitter and getting the word out around my podcast and my blog and so forth. I really count on others and you've been so supportive and helpful. So thank you very much. So I'm excited to be here as well. Um, and as you mentioned, we've been communicating for a long time. So it's really exciting for me to be here. Um, so right, like as you mentioned, I had two major bouts of depression and my first major bout was in 2010. And that one, it kind of made sense to me. I don't know if I realized at first that I was going through depression, but um, I had recently been promoted uh, to a principalship and moved to a different school where I didn't know anybody. The school was already in a deficit situation. So I was in a situation where I had to cut people before I even started. And, um, and it was a smaller school. And, you know, sometimes people think that, running a larger school, like a high school or middle school, may be more difficult. And in a lot of ways it is. I don't mean to say that's not. But when you're at an elementary school, a lot of times if you're, it, like in my case, I didn't have an assistant principal. So you are the one and only admin. And when you're brand new, you don't really know who you can count on, who to rely on. Yeah. And uh, so it was a lot of stress right off the bat. Um in my new position. And then at home, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and two newborns. So the stress was at home. The stress was at work. Um, I rarely saw my family because I was up and at work before uh, before any anybody was awake in my house. And then I was always home after dinner and oftentimes after bedtime. So I really felt like I wasn't home at all. Um, and when I was, you know, it was plenty of stress with a five-year-old, three-year-old and two newborns. And so it it was, you know, I've heard it described as stress pile up those types of situations and it just becomes overwhelming. And I called my brother and described some of what was going on. And he's a family doctor who lives in England, but is a huge um, support of mine. And he really shared with me, like, this is what's happening. You know, it sounds like depression. You really need to get to your doctor. And uh, yeah, so those were the steps I took. I I went uh, straight to my family doctor and tried to start to figure things out and get a handle on it. Well, one thing, kudos to you. and, And thank God you had a brother who's a doctor because quite often people don't reach out because there's no one in an appropriate role that they feel is capable or ready to handle just what's going on. So that's, that's a good thing. And the fact that you went to your family doctor based on that really had, had to be helpful. It had to be difficult for you. My God, four children, uh, a new school, it's hard enough walking into a new situation at work where you perhaps know some of the people, but coming in where you have both children and adults and you, you have to sort of uh, get your your feet, your, your balance 
all on your own with everything else that was going on, that had to be rough. Yeah. Yeah. It was very challenging. And, you know, I did reach out quickly that time um, and felt really comfortable reaching out to my brother. But I do think even if people know who to reach out to, sometimes it is really difficult. And I, I really think that that's you know, part of the stigma still that exists, which then plays into self-shame. And in fact, one of my blog posts is around the stigma and shame and how they they overlap. Yeah. Um, so the, the second time I had depression was really tough for me to reach out. And I was even given the name uh, from my best friend of a man who worked just with people, uh, men with depression. And it took me three weeks to reach out to him. And each week I texted my best friend saying, tell him I'm going to let him, I'm going to call him uh, as if this guy needed a heads up that a depressed guy was going to call him. But, but even knowing a professional and having a contact through my best friend took me three weeks that time. So I think it really speaks to the challenge that a lot of people, especially men have in reaching out for help. Well, yeah, because for, decades, you know, hundreds of years, the men are the hunters and gatherers. They are the the tough, strong people that we are supposed to lean on. And on top of everything else that's going on for men right now, women are stepping up and taking on career roles as well as having children and doing whatever. And it's, it's giving men pause because well, where do you fit now? Right. If they right. can do everything, where do you fit? Right. So that right. that's got to be yeah, that's got to be pretty hard as well. And how how far apart were these two depressions? So my first bout, uh, like I mentioned, was in 2010, and after two years of the principalship, I asked for a voluntary demotion, uh, and I stepped down to an assistant principal. And, uh, you know, I needed to find more family life balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that depression, you know, I did see my family doctor, like I mentioned, he got me on a medication right away and he recommended, and I did start talk therapy right away. Now right. it's hard to say, you know, depression is so insidious and creeps in. So it's tough to say when it started, when exactly it ended, but I was able to manage and keep working with a lot of support from my brother who even helped me around some meds pieces and things. But I would say my wife might disagree. I would say I recovered from that within a few months and started feeling better. But after two years, I um, took the voluntary demotion uh, and went into a different school, did one year uh, as an assistant principal again. And that year was okay. It was a little challenging. It was an sit- interesting situation between me and the principal and her, uh, her boss had actually been my mentor. And there were some challenging pieces around our relationship. But then I got a new boss. So this was my second year back as an assistant principal and really hit it off with that principal. And uh, it's a principal I, I still to this day, I just love the guy and respect him so much. And But he started and things were going great. And I got an evaluation that was really good in the beginning of the year. And then I just crashed. And so it was three years, almost to the day that uh, I got the next bout. My brother like compared emails from when I first reached out to him mm-hmm. both times. And said it was practically to the day. And I remember, um, and that was so weird, right? That one I 
didn't really have a grasp of like, why is this happening to me? I have a boss that I'm really hitting it off well with. I like the guy a lot, got a great first evaluation. And then all of a sudden, and, and it was so interesting to me, like I could feel it in my body more than anything else. And I remember telling my best friend in the car and my brother when he was in town and I just said, I feel different and this isn't going to be good. And I started therapy again and everything. I thought I was doing everything, but that depression um, got really bad pretty quickly. Um, and uh, when it, you know, I, I wasn't a, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't able to eat. I felt like I had a knot in my stomach. I would try to eat and I couldn't eat. And um, I think I was probably sleeping maybe 10 hours uh, a week. And uh, so, and, and I was having uncontrollable crying bouts in the evening. It was like I would hold it together during the day, hold it together with my kids, and then just uncontrollable crying bouts at the at night. Um, and it became really hard and it became difficult for me to associate with people, which is really strange because I'm, I'm really a pretty social person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, the time that we realized it had gotten really bad was Thanksgiving dinner. So in, uh, in November, uh, we went to some friends of my wife and it's just, they're a couple and our whole family and them. And I literally, I remember sitting at the kitchen island uh, on a stool and like watching all of the interactions and engagement around me and not participating at all. Um, and I had noticed that a couple other times when, when I was out that I was really isolating and felt more like a fly on the wall and really wasn't communicating at all. I was almost non-communicative. And when we got home from that, my wife and I talked and said, you know, if this is how I'm acting with friends, what is happening at work? And mm -hmm. what does that look like? Yeah. And it was tough for me to, to really put a handle on it. But I told my boss what I was going through and asked him to meet for coffee one morning. I said, so I'm dealing with depression. He, um, again, is a fantastic guy right away. He said, why don't you go straight home, take the time you need and make sure you get better. And the first thing he did when I walked out the door of the coffee shop to head home instead of heading to work was he called my wife to make sure that I was getting, that she knew I was on my way home and that I was going to get home. Um, and, uh, then I took, uh, at that time I took a week off of work and I thought I would try to negotiate my meds, work on my meds. I got emergency psych appointments and stuff. And then there was a week before winter break where I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go back in. It'll be a great test period. And things were, were getting more difficult with my depression. And suddenly I felt, I noticed I was having generalized thoughts of suicide, like, you know, no plan or anything, but um, different, I, you know, thoughts like it would be so much better if I just wasn't here. I wouldn't have any of these problems really started feeling like a burden, which I think is a big part of suicide actually. And uh, I went to my psychiatric PA at the time and I said to him, you know, I'm having these generalized thoughts of suicide. Could it be the depression meds, the most, you know, crazy oxymoron 
type of situation, paradoxical situation yeah. in the world, right? That antidepressants actually have warnings that they can create suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, could these be the, the meds or could it be the depression? And he said, it could be either. And he upped my meds, which mm -hmm. later I found was a mistake, but my suicidal thoughts, um, became very pervasive and, uh, mm -hmm. I couldn't get the thought out of my head. Um, I was doing some really weird things. Like I found myself on my laptop Googling things to find out, you know, how to do it and everything. And I slammed my laptop shut and was like, I can't believe I'm doing this and did some other things that were similar to that, that I just like was shocked that I was doing. And I eventually had a plan. I had the means and everything and, and I couldn't get the thought out of my head and I'd push it out of my head. And 20 minutes later, the thought was there push it out of my head. 20 minutes later, the thought was there. And one night I dreamt of my plan and I woke up from the dream and sat up in bed and it had scared the hell out of me. And I just told my wife and sister, I really need an emergency psych uh, appointment because this is scaring me. And uh, luckily I brought them to advocate for me because I knew this psychiatric PA was wishy-washy. And my sister was like, he needs time off of work because even that conversation, he was like, you know, sometimes taking time off of work can cause more stress. And then you, you what are you going to do and everything? And we got a letter from him and started calling places. And then I, uh, within a couple of days, checked myself into a partial hospitalization program for three weeks, which was the, the start of my much needed recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I have to say it, it, the sheer presence of mind and the, well, it, it's unusual even to talk to your best friend. Now, I understand the brother thing because our, our siblings, yeah, we tend to tell them more than we tell other people. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's a huge step. And, and to me, it speaks to that underlying core of responsibility and love for your wife and children, you, you, you know, even though things were going off the rails, you, some of you knew that you had to stay present because what you talk about, what you said about stigma and shame, that's the biggest issue that we still face. Yeah. You know, and, it's been so many decades for me since my first loss to suicide. And I can honestly say, I think we're not that far ahead because the shame factor permeates everything for the person who may have had suicidal ideation. But for those that are left behind, for the people that have left us, and it has to stop. We, yeah. we have to put this on the table and, and shine light on it so that we can make it the norm to talk about. You know, we're losing children at nine and 10 years of age. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. And I, I was lucky, you know, uh, I did have and I tapped into my support system. I mean, I remember yeah. meeting with my sister several times one time at a restaurant and I still remember it was like this 
giant open area with a bunch of tables. It was almost like a grocery store restaurant. Sometimes we yeah. have some fancy grocery stores with yeah. a little restaurant. Yeah. And and we were sitting near the middle and I just started bawling again for no reason. I just, I wanted to be, I remember so many times saying, I just want to feel like myself. Like I, it was almost an out of body experience. And so I was lucky I had her, you know, and, and to, to my wife and my wife and, and her to bring me to the doctor and to advocate for me. Okay. Another thing I did that was really smart at a pretty deep, dark place that I was in, uh, I, I did reach out to that gentleman who I mentioned earlier who yeah. worked with men with um, depression and anxiety. And I went to one of their support groups. I met with the the founder of the organization. It's a fantastic organization here in the Twin Cities called faceitfoundation.org and met with the founder a few times. And he really pushed me to go to a support group. So mm -hmm. I, I made sure I went to the support group the night before I checked myself into the partial hospitalization program. Right. And what I was doing was trying to create a support system for myself for when yeah. I got out, which was a very scary time too, because after three weeks, uh, then it was kind of like, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm on my own. I don't have these, the support system anymore. Like it was a, a scary kind of time. And here in Minnesota, we have a lot of options and programs. I chose not to do it, but we do have step down programs. So you can leave a partial hospitalization and go to a still intense program, but maybe three days a week instead of five days a week. Um, lots of great options. But I do think, and I, I tell people all the time, reach out for help. And then I'll hear from some people who say they didn't get help. Well, then reach out to somebody else. There is yeah. always somebody. And I'll tell you, the first person I reached out to, actually, other than my brother and sister, and I told them, I was like, I'm going to reach out to this person. And the person shut me down. Uh, it was somebody I'd worked with and they were like, well, we shouldn't really mix work and pro po and personal. And oh. it was like the most positive person I knew in my life. So I reached out to that person and, you know, was wow. shut down. And, and that was pretty devastating. Um, yeah. So that's the other thing I say oftentimes is if somebody reaches out to you, be there for them yeah. and listen to them. And you don't have to solve their problems. But no. let them know you care. Let them know you're there to help them uh, in any way you can. Well, it, part part of what I say, um, I I do a, a number of things on social media uh, to do with this, and I believe in sharing your story. And this is why I have people on the podcast. As you share your story, you're lightening your burden a little. Mm -hmm. So if you can tell your story to more people, if we can get that going, even those people that don't have a real support system, okay, like you, you can, well, I'm the kind of person, anybody can tell me anything, and they often do, uh, randomly in the street or wherever, uh, some of us just have, I guess, that look, and giving somebody just a little of your time costs you nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, nobody's asking you to solve the issue because that is not possible. Just you know, as an uh, an every man who just happens to be there, but giving someone the 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 honor, the respect that they deserve as another human being, and just listening to their story. 
Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right about the, the sharing of stories, which is why I created the podcast really. But I think it's so important. And, and like you said, it lightens the burden, right? I certainly find doing talks and supporting others is very therapeutic for myself. Um, but I also know, and part of the reason I continue to do it is because I know I touch the lives of others. I spoke in front of 140 school administrators and shared my story. And I think it was the first time anybody spoke at that level yeah. about it. And I, you know, I had one one principal pulled me aside privately where no one could see tears in his eyes saying, you just shared my story. And even two years later, I had people reaching out saying, because you shared your story. This is what I've done now to work towards my recovery. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty careful, like in the school I work in, I'm not out there in everybody's face. Like I'm the depression guy. I'm the, you know, do this, do this. But I know that they also know the advocacy work I do. And I have found that it has helped the community of our school immensely because people are comfortable to come to me and they've shared with me several people, you know, my, my child's going through some mental health stuff and, or I need to take off an hour early, or do you have some resources for this? And it is such a healthy environment when people can openly talk about those pieces without feeling they have to shut them down inside and squash them and hide them. And that just creates another burden and another reason to get, have your anxiety shoot up. And uh, so it's been, it's been really, really powerful. Um, and again, I, I try not to, I make sure I, I monitor and not overshare, but yeah. I've even shared some of my story with some parents who share with me, you know, some of their challenges of yeah. depression and so forth. And I'll let them know, Hey, this is what I did. And this really helped me. And, you know, I think, especially I feel like hearing leaders in the community and people in leadership roles, not exclusively, I think anybody sharing their story when they are ready yeah is super important, but people in leadership roles can really be incredible role models and help the, mm-hmm. the environment, the climate and culture in organizations and companies and really support people in reaching out for help. Well, yeah, because it starts with the leaders. If we bring it into the light, if the leaders bring it into the light, then the conversation becomes part of every day. And rather than waiting till you get so bad that, you know, you're, you're having this consistent suicidal ideation, having, having it nipped in the bud because you've already talked to someone because, you know, you just weren't feeling right. I believe it goes along with um, sort of a, a move to more uh, preventative medicine. Okay, we in the Western world, it's, you know, go to the doctor, you get a Band-Aid. It's always after the fact. But if we step up and teach from the children on that, you know, you, you need to monitor yourself. You need to ask for help. And, and as I say that, I can just hear my father shaking his head going, yeah, gee, too bad you don't listen. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's the old do as I say, not as I do thing, right? That that was one of his favorite sayings. <laughs> yes, yes. I tried to pass that on to my kids. They weren't having it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I'm actually, and you must see it all the time because you're with children. You know, as a principal, you're seeing kids. And I think, I think for one, that children are more ready, uh, or maybe not more, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Children, we've always been ready to be given more in terms of how to live life, how to, how to be humans. But the children that are coming up, I think the parents are finally starting to be more open to understanding that you can give them a little more. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I think schools and, and maybe the pandemic, maybe this will be one of the silver linings. I think schools are understanding they need to do a lot more around social emotional learning. And, uh, you know, that was a beautiful thing that we've done in our school too. We've really focused on the social emotional piece for kids and for adults. Um, and, you know, kids, getting kids to do some mind of mindfulness, getting kids yeah. to self-regulate, getting kids to understand their feelings, to know it's really okay to be angry, but what do you do with that anger and how do you handle that anger? And to know it's okay, right? It's not the old school, tell the boys, buck up, you can't cry. Like, yeah. it's okay to cry, but but how do you handle your anger? What do you need to do to get back in into a regulated situation? So we're doing a lot more of that. We even have a couple of therapists in our school. We have an art therapist as well, in addition. Yeah. So, um, you know, so we, at least at our school, are really prioritizing that need. The piece that I think needs a little more publicity and work is I think everybody understands that the kids need more mental health support in schools and that yeah. they are underserved and we're not doing enough. But nobody that I see or hear talks about the educators themselves. And, yeah. you know, a lot of, especially our urban educators, we're dealing with kids who are going in and out of trauma on a daily basis. Yeah. And we are seeing the behaviors, we're seeing the consequences. And there, you know, vicacious, um, trauma or uh, secondary trauma. It, it's real, right? And educators, I mean, like you mentioned, so young, right? I mean, I've heard of very young kids where a teacher had to, to pull a scissors from their hand because and call for help because they had a scissors towards their throat. And what do we do? You know, we get somebody in there, grab the scissors, and then it's like, all right, have a good luck with the end of your math lesson now. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and educators what? get no time to process, no time to to think about the, the things they, you know, and the stories we hear even, you know, as an administrator in the urban uh, urban schools, you know, it's sad how many times we have to call um, child protective services <laughs> and things. Yeah. And, and the stories you hear from these kids that are so young that um, it's impactful, right? I know. And, and as an administrator, I can close my door and I can take some deep breaths or I can grab a breathing ball and do some breathing strategies, yeah. whatever I need. I could play some music, but a teacher is stuck in their room and yeah. they don't have this processing time. And I have plenty of examples in our district, even just in my school of serious, serious mental health issues 
um, just in one small school, you know, and I know it's rampant. And now again, that's another silver lining of the pandemic possibly because now I see in the literature, like the numbers of teachers who are looking at quitting the profession and the number of teachers who are dealing with depressive symptoms because yeah. they were so overwhelmed with not only are you going to be teaching, but you're going to be doing it virtually now. You're going to learn this new thing. You're not going to be working directly with kids. They're going to be on screen. You're going to have parents to deal with. They're, you know, it was a whole different ballgame. I can't tell you how many times I heard the the phrase, I, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I want to yeah. work with kids. Yeah. I want to, I don't want to sit behind a screen. Absolutely. Um, my, my neighbor uh, next door is a teacher and uh, yeah, it, it was very early on in the pandemic. She said, how do you do it? How do you function in that little box all the time? And I said, it, it, it's different because I'm, I'm not necessarily attached to the outcome for the people on the other side of the screen in the way you have to be with children. Right, right. And, and trying to maintain order has, you know. Yeah, maintain order with attention. one kid is enough, right, to get their attention <laughs> yeah. for one kid is, is enough. You know, you have 15 kids or 20 kids on there and you're trying to, you know, and I'm only saying 15 or 20, which isn't even a full class because they didn't all show up, unfortunately, either. But yeah, so there's there's a lot we need to do around education. Yeah, yeah. And the pandemic has given given us all a chance to to really open our eyes and and see the holes in the fabric of daily living that that really need to be mended. And I think working with feelings is probably numero uno because you know from from my generation yeah first of all men didn't dare have feelings that was not appropriate and even as women there were only certain feelings we were allowed right you know when we think of it now i mean that's just crazy there's nothing wrong with your feelings it's it's what you do with them after and there are so many ways that we can equip children to not only feel the feelings, but then to deal with the aftermath of that. Right. You know, it, it's, I kind of, I, I kind of wish we could show all kids. I showed my two youngest grandkids uh, a herd of gazelle and the lions came and all the gazelle ran pell-mell. And once the danger was over, they all stood and shook. And I said, do it, guys. Like, you just, you shake and you can let all that go. The fear goes, whatever. And Well, they think I'm a little weird anyway. <laughs> but, uh, the youngest one said, oh, oh, that's kind of, I like that. Grandma. <laughs> I like that. I said, good, good. Yeah, awesome. You're giving them a coping strategy. Really, it's a tool. It's yeah. a tool. Um, you know, God help them when they get into the schoolyard and do that, because people are just going to tell them that their glamour's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Till we get everybody doing it, right? But it, I, I think it's important that we get the message out there that everything we do affects the children, and every person that is dealing with something untoward depression other mental illnesses 
they are entitled to the help just because they're human. Absolutely. And I think for me, that's the, the biggest issue is people have to realize everybody has a little gift and everybody has some kind of issue. We all just have to deal with those in a more inclusive way, I think. Right. More inclusive and more kindness we could all use. Absolutely. Kindness, compassion, and empathy. I think that's what we need to teach children right off the bat. Yeah, for sure. Because hopefully they can go home and teach it to some of their parents. Right. Yeah. You know, that's the only way I think we're ever going to be able to break the cycle because you you can only do what you know and people who came from a difficult situation will recreate that because that's all they know yeah you know and and i think we have to start with the kids now and getting them to understand that life is precious every life is precious I'm not going to get on my soapbox. <laughs> you get to. It's your show. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, there is that. <laughs> uh, that was well put. So <clears throat> from your coping strategies and uh, from everything that you learned, what's one thing you would say to someone that's maybe just feeling a little not themselves well the first thing i would say is it's okay it's okay if you're not okay and um you know if it's bad enough i would certainly say reach out for help and let somebody know but if they're just starting to feel like something's off and they're looking for some tools you know i think there are different tools for everybody. And I think mm -hmm. I, I like to call it kind of a multi-pronged approach. I think there's not going to be one fix if you're starting to get into a depressive bout. You know, it's not, even if you go for medication, it don't rely on one fix, mm -hmm. right? So I think having a hobby, um, something that you enjoy doing is really important. Making sure you're staying socially connected you know, make sure you're going out with a friend once in a while. Maybe you're noticing that you haven't been out in a long time. So those social connections are really important. Um, do some writing. Some people love to journal um, around their thoughts and stuff. Exercise is a huge one. I mean, there's some research yeah. that says exercise does as much as any antidepressant. So I think there's a lot of evidence that exercise. And, and I always tell people if, you know, if they're at a point where, where they're stuck on the couch, create small goals and make sure you pat yourself on the back when you complete it. If you haven't been able to get out of the house, make sure you set a goal to walk around the block one time. It doesn't have to be huge. Go to the gym and do a two hour workout. Yeah. Walk, go, you know, go for a, going for a walk gives you uh, fresh air. It gives you um, possibly some social peace. It gives you some exercise. It gets you up and out. It's, it's huge. So those are some of the the go-tos I would I would recommend. That's excellent. And and they're all good. 
I have to say thank you so much. I, I so appreciate you coming and sharing with the audience your story. Uh, I, I, I say it over and over and, and it's become like a little mantra, but when you share, it does lighten your burden a little. And every time you share, you just get a little more pep in your step, Yeah, what I'll call it. Absolutely. So I'm filled with gratitude for you coming on the show today. I really appreciate that. I will be seeing you, of course, on Twitter and passing on all of your wonderful information along with the podcast, The Depression Files, and your blog. And for anyone who needs to reach out, remember, there is something in your city. We have the main ones on the website and just reach out, a neighbor, someone on the corner, someone if you're in a mall or you're walking by, there will be someone who will listen. And you can tell people, I just want you to listen. You know, that's all it often takes for you to be able to connect with another human being. And as Al said, try it. Not just once, try it a couple of times. Yeah, especially if it doesn't go so well, call somebody else. There's a doctor, there's a clergy member, yeah. there's a neighbor, yes. a trusted colleague, a, a long, a distant relative. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been really enjoyable. And again, I really appreciate the support you've given me. And I really, um, really appreciate and value what you're doing. It's, it's really incredible. Thank and I'm you. so glad you've got this show going. Well, thank you. And uh, it, it's technically all for Andrea because Andrea gave me this nice long life now, yeah. which I'm very appreciative of. On that note, said thank you to my guest. I want to thank the audience. And I want to say, make the very best of your today every day. Do your best to try, at least. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.